Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Christmas Wonky Show. Uh, student finance is back up for debate. We'll assess the merits of a graduate tax. Uh, there's new guidance out on student suicide. We'll look at the implications. Plus, we'll talk research assessment, PGR supervision, disabled students, and we might even have a sing-song at the end. It's all coming up. Abs- absolutely. And, and it's, a nice, it's a nice fantasy to have that these reasonable adjustments, the anticipatory nature and the inclusive teaching and learning piece, have been put in place. Some, there are pockets of good practice, but it's certainly not universal. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to deck the halls with bows of policy, as usual, three top-flight guests. Uh, in sunny Brighton, Michelle Morgan is Dean of Students at UEL. Michelle, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, my highlight of the week. Um, Wonky published a piece by Beth, my colleague, um, from the policy uh, department at UEL today. Yes, and a, and, a fi- and a fine piece it is. I would very much recommend people give it a look drawing parallels between how the sector responded over COVID and how the sector ought to respond over cost of living. So uh, do, do have a look. In, in sunny York uh, this week, Pete Quinn is g- as a general purpose inclusion consultant. Pete, your highlight of the week, please. Thanks for selling me so well, Jim. I, I feel really seen. Um, so ho, 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 everybody. Um, yeah, the highlight of my week was um, I'm involved in a charity called Menfulness, which is around men's mental health. And uh, we are the uh, charity of choice and one of the local uh, transport organisations. So we're getting masses of coverage because um, I think we'll need it for the new year in supporting men across Excellent York. stuff. And uh, still in London, uh, off the back of our team meeting yesterday, David Kernahan is acting editor at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Has to be the wonky christmas party yesterday um a f- fine afternoon and indeed evening was had by all yes we had the choice say. of going to the ofs press briefing on the freedom of speech event or you know seeing each other so <laughs> guess what we did tough t- tough one gentlemen really tough, tough one. one yeah 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 it took us ages to agonize over that one right yes yeah, so we start this week with student finance uuk has launched a big conversation and the university of the arts has commissioned a look at some options pete thank you so it's called a national conversation on the future of university funding and it comes from um it, it, it's strange that we're still having this conversation when we've got Deering told us brown told us the auger review told us but here we are again looking again at how we fund uk higher education it's really needed for several reasons which include that the student maintenance package which is separate from the fees package um is at its lowest value for seven years universities are making losses on domestic teaching research costs aren't being fully funded and uh, internationally the lowest share of public funding in the OECD is the UK, um, with 24% put towards uh, university higher education rather than 66%, which is the average in OECD countries. So, yep, London Economics this week um, put forward a couple of alternatives.
alternatives to the current fee system. Both cost neutral. One is a stepped loan repayment and one is a graduate tax payable until the age of 65. So it was an interesting event on the Tuesday. I sort of watched uh, some of it because they, they, uh, they did a sort of um, hybrid event. Um, but David Willits was speaking and he, he shared his concerns that um, this could mean the end of autonomy for, for universities if they're seen as kind of part of the public sector. So um, big point, though, that I would like to draw from it is it's great we're talking about fees, but what about the falling unit of resource that yes, 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 we'll get to that. Really let's, uh, before we get yeah. there, let's let's have a quick listen. So there's a couple of clips that we're going to play out here. One from um, Gavin Conlon from London Economics, who was talking about his options that he's worked up for U, uh, UAL, and also a little clip of Willits. Here we go. The higher education fees and funding system has been, um, you know, it's like Frankenstein's monster now. Uh, it's been amended and adjusted so many times that we sort of don't know which way is up. Um, and, you know, with the most recent response by the Department for Education um, after the auger review, uh, a lot of changes have been made. And actually, we're at a point now where we sort of think that the current fees and funding system probably couldn't be any worse. Um, I mean, if I sat down with a first year economic student sort of said, design a system that sort of, sort of quote unquote, benefits the wrong types of people, then they would come up with this system. As James said earlier on, um, this is, you know, we're trying to open up uh, a bit of a discussion about potential alternatives because the, the current system is really quite atrocious. Um, and, you know, may not be the perfect system. You know, there may be better alternatives. But one really important point is like, if anybody does have better alternatives, happy have always sort of said in the past that, um, you know, there's no point in criticizing things without putting up an alternative. So this is an alternative. If anybody has a better alternative, please get in touch. Commission us. We'll model it. We'll be offer very competitive rates. People will know if I go and study economics at Cambridge or law at a Russell Group University, I am going to be paying a hell of a lot extra. In the top decile in the model, I think it was about £160,000. And that, and people will be able to see that. So we will have, uniquely in the Western world, a higher education offer that is more expensive than the most expensive American university. And although at the moment, I think, I think he's, he's overdoing it, Rishi uh, Sunak and senior members of government are worried about very low earnings courses and cutting back in those. This is absolutely precisely targeted on very high earning courses. Why on earth would you go and do economics at Cambridge or engineering at Imperial if you are taking on the high risks of very high tax throughout your work life? You can see the offer from Yale and Penn State and Sydney now. Come to us. Of course, you can go back and that's why the migration issue is the wrong way around. Of course, you can go back then to Britain, but don't worry, you'll have had a really good economics education out here and then you can go back and pursue your career and unlike the, the mugs alongside you in Barclays or Goldman Sachs or Cliff Chance, you won't be paying this ludicrous high graduate cost. That's the, so what you, or of course you can go private. You can say, I won't go to it. I won't participate in the scheme. In other words, you haven't, you, you do have a real problem of exit. It's not just a shoe principle. Now, there's some other issues and we mustn't get bogged down, but the, the other issue is in a graduate tax, who are the graduates? So can you apply it to people? We have no list of British people who went to university. You could, I suppose, apply it to people currently in the student loan system. And look, I have argued that it should be possible to adjust the term of their loans, but I think, I suppose you could try to say everyone who's currently in the student loan system, you're now facing a completely different tax regime. I think that would be politically impossible myself, given the difficulty of even making very modest alterations. You could, I think, and this is where the Blairite Brownite dispute ended up, you could announce a graduate tax for all people, all future people going to university in England. 
we'll set aside the interesting federal question as well. We do that, I suppose. Um, but then the Blairite calculation is it's 20 years before you start collecting back serious money. So you then open up an interesting debate about how you finance higher education for 20 years before your graduate tax is collecting the money. DK, uh, a lo- to some extent, it was what wasn't discussed at the event that was interesting, wasn't it? Well, the debate about fees and funding has always, especially in the last five, ten years, it's felt kind of really constrained by um, the parameters that were drawn for us after the Brown review. Um, I was struck by the fact that all of it still assumed that all of the funding is going to follow the student. Um, All of it still assumed primarily that students themselves would be paying for the majority or the entirety of the cost of their own education. And it just felt like if we are going to solve this problem, and it is now, I think that we're all clear um, a problem that does need to be addressed uh, we are going to have to think more broadly than that I was interested to hear Pete mention the unit of resource which seems to be an idea that's coming back into fashion that we think of the the total amount of income a university gets per student which may include funding that directly follows student numbers and may also follow um, a more general allocation as w- with the strategic um, uh, funding offered by OFS. Um, yeah, there's a lot still to go on this. I think the Universities UK piece was particularly good in that it's an evolution from what they've traditionally done, which is to get a bunch of vice chancellors together and say, can we have some more money, please, if that's all right with you guys? Um, it is starting a national conversation. And there's a lot of great little facts to drop into conversation. I was struck by the fact that the UK has the best continuation rate in the OECD and is also significantly better at graduate returns in terms of salary and skilled work than any other country in the OECD. Yes. Michelle, obviously you're on the site this week talking about, um, you know, cost of living and, and, and one of the, you know, one of the things that wasn't really discussed in any detail was student maintenance the other day. It, it, it did strike me that one of the things that no one seems to be kind of working on is working out how much students, you know, how much a, student, a full-time student needs. Because until you work that out, you can't really work out how to split it between parents, part-time work and the state, can you? You do need to kind of work out how much students need first, don't you? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think this has been my frustrated frustration when I've been sort of reading through the proposals, um, is that it doesn't factor that in. And for me, with, um, you know, my UKCG hat on and, you know, my work with postgraduate, in all of this discussion about the future of funding, you know, whether it be the, the, the step loan repayments or the graduate t- tax, it totally ignores those who also have a postgraduate loan. And any decision needs to factor this in. We've got 58% of full-time postgraduates in 2021 who are between the age of 21 and 24. So they will have accrued debt under the current scheme. And got to remember that the, the, the loans are paid concurrent. So you're paying the undergraduate repayments at 9% and 6% for the postgraduate loan. And remember that the threshold for the postgraduate loan is 21,000, not between 25 and 27,000 for plan two and four. And with the increase in postgraduate fees, you know, that in many cases, the postgraduate loan doesn't even cover the fee and it needs to be factored into, you know, into the discussion. Because what about postgraduates who have to go on to a postgraduate 
qualification in certain disciplines such as STEM subjects because it's required for charter status and career development. And it would be ironic that a model adopted to create career advantage is actually going to create social and career disadvantage. So if we don't get the model right, it's going to lead, in my opinion, to many social issues further down the road. Yeah, a, re- a real mistake to kind of ignore or at least set aside or pretend it's not there, the, the, the postgraduate question. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Pete, one of the things, one, one, one of the conversations that did come up during the event that I thought was interesting was, um, you know, effectively, you know, Gavin, to some extent, had been asked to solve this problem of the reforms that Michelle Donnellan snuck through earlier on in the year being regressive. But then there was some pushback from panellists arguing, well, maybe it doesn't need to be progressive. D- d- does it need, you know, does the repayment system need to be progressive? Does that matter? You know, does it matter that, you know, nurses will end up paying more for their higher education than bankers? Uh, of course it does. And I think that's the crux of the issue at the moment, that we've got a lot of people who do the most valuable work, arguably, for society, are the least recognised. And I think what what's also missing in this wider conversation is the disability tax, for example, where disabled students, disabled people pay more for accommodation, more on transport and travel, and more on other areas, which which is completely missed in the, the maintenance package. Um, it, it, it's always been... Um, up- kind of upsetting to me that um, for years this has been not understood by um, parents, carers, students themselves about that the maintenance loan doesn't cover your maintenance costs now and then other people are penalised for having particular characteristics um, where it, it, it behooves yes. you to pay yes. more yeah, money. Yeah, yes, it would be strange wouldn't it to not think about the characteristics of debt load and total repayment when in other contexts during the experience we're constantly thinking about different characteristics and students, yeah. Uh, and DK, just on, just on the politics of all of this where you know where 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 will all of this go weren't we supposed to have um a kind of view from the labor party by now on 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 this sort of stuff because presumably we're not keir starmer isn't going to wander into the next election with the same free education pledge that corbyn had is he um i would be very surprised if he did it's a difficult pledge politically to climb down from in that it's become one of these totemic things around certain parts of the left and certainly the graduate left that uh, the current fee system is unfair and unfairly places most of the burden onto students. Um, the UAL thing, uh, there has been a little bit of back-channel gossip that this actually is as close as we're going to get to a Labour Party approach to looking at the fees and um, funding issue. It's obviously offered a couple of policy possibilities. Um, we have to hope um, it's a start of a conversation in the same way as um, the Universities UK work is a standard um, conversation. We are a, um, a couple of years out from an election. People do tend to talk at the moment as if the election is like next week or something and every, um, this government's basically done. We've got a lot more road to get down. I'm still, I would put an outside bet on some kind of um, a major review of fees and funding that would happen between the parties and we would uh, punt the issue upstairs to some dignitaries who would um, call in evidence and write another report um, getting on for five years or so after the auger review that would take 
uh, a less constrained and kind of more fresh use of this. But certainly in terms of Labour um, positioning, the idea at the moment appears to be not to have any detailed policy on pretty much everything um, and just basically fill in the gaps as we get nearer the time. And, you know, I mean, looking at the polls, you can see that that, at least on the surface, is working. It's not going to last, but for the moment, I think this is where we're going to stay. Great. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. All parents are carers, not all carers are parents. Together, could they help make academia more humane? Hi, I'm Dr Mark Gatto, lecturer at Northumbria University. This week, my colleague Dr Anna Lopez and I have been blogging for Wonky about parents and carers' networks across the higher education sector in the UK. It's widely acknowledged that parents and carers often shoulder a heavy burden in their workplaces, carrying emotional and physical weights throughout their day. Their second unpaid shift may have begun very early and finish often very late. Our research explores the emergence of parents and carers' networks and aims to better understand how and why they are organising. Our early findings suggest that there is an unmet need that is being addressed by volunteer parents and carers informally organising and we feel that this suggests a form of community and solidarity that could contribute to a more humane academia. Our research continues into 2020 with a survey and interviews where we hope to learn more and contribute to the growth of this exciting form of informal and formal organising. Now, next up this week, Universities UK has some new guidance out on student suicide and specifically what should happen after the death of a student, DK. So this is an interesting set of guidance. Um, Unfortunately, student suicide is something that uh, does happen. So um, universities obviously have to have processes in place where um, a student has died by suicide or is believed to have died by suicide. It is one of those situations that um, nobody in a university wants to be in. And the important thing, as far as I see it, is that a university needs to be organised, it needs to understand what it's going to do in that situation, the way it's going to deal with uh, um, the staff training needs, the way it's going to provide kind and timely support to family and friends, deal with stuff like student finance, student belongings, all of the rest of it. Um, it comes of the, it comes as a shock when somebody dies by um, suicide. It's always upsetting, and the role of the university needs to be to make the process of dealing with the practicalities of the issue as straightforward and as supportive as they possibly can. Pete, one of the things that um, you know, I thought, you know, I mean, clearly, m- m- most of the chapters. I mean, in some ways, I would hope most of the chapters are kind of already in in place in some ways. So, to some extent, maybe this kind of sums up, you know, what what represents good practice. But but, but one of the things I was kind of scratching my head about a bit was that was the section on reviewing, evaluating, and learning, because you know, certainly in my experience, talking to people, th- there's often this kind of spectre of not wanting to investigate, you know, particularly publicly 
actually partly because of worries about liability. And and, and one of the things that strikes me that the guidance doesn't really tackle is that whole, you know, countervailing pressure to avoid liability, to not get the university in legal hot water and so on. And that, you know, as long as that is there, that's going to make the sort of processes you would want to go through to learn in terms of preventing more difficult, isn't it? Potentially. I mean, I, I saw this as an exercise in benchmarking for many universities. I mean, I'd be really surprised if there wasn't a process to follow in most universities. I thought it was lacking in some areas, in particular to do with uh, social media conversations. And the real challenge at the start where the university is effectively um, silenced or has to keep quiet because it's in the domain of the coroner's court often. So it's a real juxtaposition in that there's a lot of flurry of of, um, information flying around that it's really difficult for you to engage in without some careful thought. Um, Yes, I understand that um, element of liability. Um, Sadly, having had experience of of implementing these kind of guidelines um, on more than one occasion, sadly, um, I think what is missing as well is that there are suicide prevention coordinators in pretty much every city and local authority. And that really helps when you are trying to move the the locus to um, using all the systems and services available to support the tragic death of anyone, whether they've died by suicide or whether it's a a, a natural death or or, um, a road traffic accident and similar. So, yeah, I I, I think there are some elements lacking in this guidance, but certainly it would be a benchmarking exercise for most people. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I think this framework on advice and guidance, it's so welcome and I think it's going to be useful to everyone working in higher education who may need to be involved in responding to the death of a student. Now, sadly, I've seen the impact too often of a student's death, fellow students and staff, and that includes technicians, academic, professional service and estate staff who've worked with and got to know the students. DK, one of the things that do, that, that does strike me is um, that there, in, in some of the coverage of some of the cases in recent years, it feels like a bit of an intensification of this idea that the university ought to have been in some way, if not technically legally, but in some way in loco parentis, in some way looking after a student in a way that perhaps isn't very realistic. Where are we on that whole in loco parentis, the, the vice chancellor as the as the boarding school headmaster kind of mock thing? Where, where's that debate got to? Um, it is, as you hint there in your question, it is an unhelpful model that a university is necessarily liable that for everything that happens to students while they are a student, it is nearly as untenable as the fact that it suddenly stops as soon as a student um, graduates. So you look at, say, in mental health support, uh, you would uh, perhaps be getting support via the university for a mental health issue that you have um, that, you, that you have raised with them, but that would not seamlessly progress to um, a graduate experience. So, I mean, I mean, one thing I would be really interested to see is data about the mental health of um, graduates. I mean, it seems clear that um, a university um, in this sense is almost being seen as an arm of the state, that it has got responsibility for young people. And it does tend to be young people in this framing, forgetting, of course, the the, um, enormous numbers of mature students who perhaps see things in a different way. But for the um, dominant young person, um, first degree paradigm, it is seen as the, uh, the, the bit of infrastructure that deals with all 
of the problems that a person may face in that situation. There is a case to think um, more widely, to think about ways in which universities could get together to offer these services and support in partnership with local authorities and um, local NHS trusts. Um, That would require that uh, vice-chancellors would need to give away a bit of power and a bit of money, but I think the potential benefits for students in such circumstances to have access to the kind of largest and um, more comprehensive services that a smaller provider may not be able to offer. Um, I think that the benefits absolutely outweigh that. Pete, one of the one of the the, the things that strikes me because obviously OFS uh, certainly in England has had some money out recently via the government on on strengthening partnerships between universities and uh, trusts, local NHS trusts. But I, I mean, everything I read in the press and all of the reports, you know, there's a report out a couple of weeks ago from the NHS suggests that mental health services in general, and particularly youth mental health services, are absolutely on their knees. And and you know, you can't really strike an effective partnership with with with, with a partner that hasn't got any time or money, can you? Absolutely not. And um, two. 2016, the Mental Health Foundation published a report that showed on average there is a 10-year gap between someone being initially diagnosed with a mental health difficulty or identified and then receiving treatment. And there's chronic underfunding in those services. Although I would say that there are opportunities already and many are used to liaise with the local authority major incident response teams. Sounds a very dramatic title. It's usually a group of volunteers who have counselling or other frameworks that they can help and support um, institutions, the friends and family of people who've died by suicide the wider staff members who are particularly traumatised by this. I think what's lacking in this guidance as well is, is the real impact and the traumatic impact on people working. I think D, um, DK or Michelle touched on those frontline services, team members, people who work in the cafe, people who work on the, in the library, who have much more interaction um, with these um, students often than the teaching learning staff. And I w- would also hope that there'd be a more of an international dimension to this guidance, because um, there, there are certainly um, international students who who die by suicide in the UK. But the final thing I would say is that it's really important that employee assistance programmes, which universities have, are made available and made very clear to um, particularly staff who feel particularly bereaved by, by the death of a student. Now, let's look back at how things were and how things came to be. With academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. Okay, so I think that one of the meta-themes of Wonky is how we get universities and policy stuck together. And yeah, there were whole books published on this now, which are excellent. But the best way you could possibly manage this is for universities to have their own MPs. How much fun would that be? And the good news is, for over 600 years, that's what we had. I probably need to amend that. It wasn't 600 years, it was about 400 years. So, for ages, we had our own MPs. Um, what happened was... Beginning of um, James the First and Sixth's reign, um, when he came down from Scotland, he wanted to summon a new parliament, and the university thought this was a great way of having their own MP. So Oxford and Cambridge got themselves organised. Um, they had a discussion with uh, the king's ministers about what the best thing to do would be. So the king's ministers wrote back and said, "Look, on the whole, we'd be good if you didn't send the vice chancellor. Send us two people." And they went up to the university's governing body to decide who the two members of parliament for the two universities would be. 
And so over time, what happened was that that got coalesced, so people got to have a vote because they're democratic institutions. And so slowly this became a way of getting to have MPs. And they were just normal MPs after a while. They weren't just representing the university. They just did normal things for the university. So they went through a long line of distinguished people, but not a very distinguished electoral process because it was just down to the governing body. Everyone who had an MA could vote in it. Um, and therefore, there was an awful lot of what you would have yeah, effectively called um, vote rigging. Um, King sending delegates, the chancellor of the university would nominate somebody and it was, you know, woe betide the university didn't send them back. So curiously enough, they had um, one of the university chancellors of Cambridge managed to get his nephew appointed as an MP. Uh, he hadn't actually been to Cambridge, so they had to quickly make him a member of Trinity College so that he could be the MP for Cambridge. Uh, and everything went off quite happily from there. So this continues. Um, uh, there's a mixture of very um, enterprising young men who get picked to do this, and sometimes it's safe country gentlemen. Uh, and this continues happily until you get to uh, the growth of new universities in the 19th century. And so the University of London manages to persuade Parliament it should have an MP too. Uh, and so off they go, and they, they set up a convocation to do that. The Scots get university MPs as well, um, and therefore there's a, a big development of this work. Come the First World War, electoral reform is on everyone's mind. And so there's a parliamentary commission, the Speaker's Commission, that sets out what we should do. And the great thing is that they decide to reform the university MPs, and they do two key things. Firstly, they let the combined universities, the new modern universities, have their own MP, and they let women vote in these elections and stand for them, because this is the same uh, piece of legislation that lets women have the, the vote. They have to have a special codicil to allow Oxford and Cambridge uh, graduates, because the women aren't allowed to be graduates yet, but they are allowed to stand in the election and, and vote in the election. But in the parliamentary commission, they thought that single transferable votes would be a good idea. So they actually had single transferable votes for MPs for the university constituencies. It was a postal vote. Uh, you got on the register. Um, you're allowed to be on the register of different universities, but you can only vote once in a university constituency. And it was good student union style single transferable votes. And for uh, the period between 1918 and 1948, we had single transferable vote, proportional representation in the UK Parliament, but only for these university constituencies. Now, some of the people were quite distinguished who did this. There was a particularly um, impressive woman who became uh, the MP for the combined universities, Eleanor Rathbone. She did all sorts of reforming things. Uh, but on the whole, there was a mixture between party political people. They weren't too independent. So, come the Second World War, the Labour Party comes into power, uh, they start to implement another Speaker's Commission after that, and they decide to go completely against pluralism. So they drop it. And there's a great exchange in Parliament with Winston Churchill, sounding a bit like Boris Johnson, definitely laying into the Socialist Party for this terrible breach of all this historical precedent of how they'd had these wonderful people who'd been MPs uh, for the universities, uh, and it should continue. And Churchill swears that he will bring it back in uh, when he gets back into power. 
to the Labour Party get rid of it. In the 1950 election, there are no university MPs. But, strangely enough, it never gets back on the statute. We do not have university MPs. Plenty of people might think of themselves as a university MP representing a uh, university constituency. But we would have had a separate vote as graduates for our own MPs. Um, an opportunity that no doubt um, we could try and press for in the future. Get that policy decision back into our education. Let's have our own MPs. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, also this week, the UK Council for Graduate Education has published a report on doctoral supervision, Michelle. Yes. So the UK Council for Graduate Education has published a report on how UKRI could better support doctoral supervision based on a series of focus groups conducted earlier this year. For those who don't know what UKRI is, it's the umbrella body for the research councils, along with Innovate UK and Research Inc. All told, it funds around 20% of all doctoral researchers in the UK. So with my UK CG elected council, member hat on. Let me provide some context to the report. It came about due to the Economic and Social Research Council report um, in 2021, which commissioned a review of PhDs in social sciences. And a recommendation was made that anyone who supervised an ESRC doc student should undertake mandatory accredited supervisory training. UK's uh, UKCG's best estimate at the moment is that around ooh, 66%, I think it is, of supervisors have mandatory induction training, but only 29% have mandatory continuing professional development as a supervisor. And we know this from the UKCG's 2021 UK Research Supervision Survey. So this ESRC recommendation was certainly a challenge to the sector. Anyway, on the back of this recommendation in the ESRC review of the PD and in the context of the New Deal for Postgraduate Research, UKRI commissioned the UK Council for Graduate Education to find out what it could do better to support doctoral supervision. And it's important to recognise that this report is a scoping document with UKCGE being commissioned to find out whether the UK RI should write a statement of expectations for supervisors. So to the report, the report notes that institutions have their own guidelines for supervision, but recommends that UK RI should publish a high level statement of expectations for supervision, as well as conduct more research on existing institutional guidance, which this report indicates would be cautiously welcomed by the postgraduate sector. Other recommendations include clear guidance on what counts as bullying and harassment in doctoral supervision, research supervisors should not have a role in funding decisions, and that work workload allocation for supervision should be mandatory. Pete, one of the things I was thinking about this when I was looking at it was, I mean, those those training stats are interesting, aren't they? Right. But but part of it is okay. So there's 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 umming and ahhing about whether there should be a kind of centralised, overarching statement of expectations around supervision. That's a that's basically a huge component of the PGR student 
experience. And the fact that it doesn't already exist and, and there isn't really anything in anything that OFS have ever published is astonishing, really, isn't it? It is, given that. I mean, I think to just to normalise what expectations are or should be is, is, I would have thought, you know, it's 101 when it comes to um, research supervision. I'm doing a project at the moment with Disabled Students UK looking at the um, the lived experience of um, doctoral researchers with disability um, in the life sciences area. And, and that's throwing up some fascinating insights um, from the kind of um, structured conversations. But yes, those kind of core expectations are entirely missing. And we know that power dynamic is absolutely crucial for success and is probably implicit in yeah. any failure. Yeah, because, because DK, if you don't know what the expectations are, you, you don't know what's kind of normal or right or wrong. And so if there's bad practice or poor practice, you don't know how to challenge it. The thing that uh, sticks in my mind about all of this is that an increasingly large number of postgraduate research students are international students. There's been a huge boom in um, postgraduate research students coming from overseas to do um, research work at that level and if you've not been in the um, UK university sector before there is a culture shock linked to that even above and beyond the shock you get from moving to undergraduate to masters to postgraduates and the different expectations placed on you as you pass through each of those stages. Now um, the relationship between um, a postgraduate research student and their supervisor is an absolutely key component of the student experience much more so than at undergraduate or at master's level where you will have a bunch of lecturers and professors that you deal with and if there's one you don't especially get on with or you have a problem with there are always others postgraduate research students it's often the case you apply to work with a particular person and if that person has not been trained adequately in providing support for um, postgraduate learning and they um, are modelling behaviours or carry out practices that are problematic or unhelpful or excessively challenging then we have a real problem because if especially if you're an international student you may not necessarily have the institutional literacy to know that you can and should complain about this that you can and should be able to hold them to a system of expectations that's provided by the institution if we would have a set of expectations that were set at a national level this would make the whole thing more transparent transparent. It would be nice to see um, better signposting of the expectations and what you can do if those expectations you feel are not being met. There's far too many horror stories out there about people who have had a bad supervisory experience and have thus left academia altogether and that just feels to me to be a huge waste. From a, from a personal point of view I think this is an important development because it does show that UKRI are prioritising research supervision as critical to the doctoral student experience and success, you know, as DK alludes to, you know, how many failures at doctoral level are due to poor supervision? And at one time, as Owen Gower, who is the director of UKCG, would argue, supervision is often neglected, is the neglected secret garden part of academic practice. But clearly, UKRI want to give it greater priority. And that's a good thing for the sector. And although only they, although they only fund a minority of doctoral researchers, their policies and practices do quickly become a benchmark sector. And it's important because anything that shines a light on the importance of research supervision is a good thing. And this is what this report does. But I am increasingly, cons- you know, c- kind of confused by all of this because, you know, when when we got the split from Hefke and OF, you know, in, into OFS and, um, you know, UKRI, 
in, in my head, you know, it, it it was it was it was the office for students that was going to look after student stuff. And you know, this this is definitely about. I mean, clearly, to, on one level, it's about the you know the professional development and the standards of the people who are the supervisors. But but on another level, this is clearly about the postgraduate student experience. And you know, I, I mean, do you get a sense, Michelle, of where this fits with, for instance, UKRI's big new deal for postgraduate uh, talks, yeah, postgraduate research students? Um, I, I think the, I think the way the whole the whole sector is structured with the different um, groups responsible for different activities just creates silos. And it's just so important that, you know, we bring all of these elements together um, and look at it holistically. And I think that's my frustration over the last kind of 15 years, just seeing how higher education and bodies support, supposed to support higher education, etc., have just changed. And in all of that change, in all of that churn, you know, things drop through the cracks. And I think we need to kind of regroup and actually create um, a framework um, of action of consistency move forward. I, th- I think there's something about survival of the fittest and that's how many people who are now supervisors have experienced their PhD and they bring that behaviour into their supervision. You know, it's a kind of Never uh, did me different any way of working. Yeah, well, it's yeah. a bit like that. But the interesting thing is that even people with sort of lived experience of disability or mental health, they adopt the characteristic of the aggressor or the, d- the, the difficult um, supervisor. So it really it's really evident that in the absence of these guidelines that there is um you know people go to what they know rather than what is best practice uh, interesting stuff uh more the links to all the relevant stuff uh, are in the show notes now next up james coe is here to talk research assessment everyone is james associate editor for research and innovation i'm here to talk about all things research assessment and data that has come out over the past couple of weeks So first of all, following the 2015 publication of The Metric Tide, The Metric Tide Revisited has now been published. The Metric Tide Revisited points out that there is a danger we are becoming over-reliant on use of data to assess research excellence. Data alone cannot give us the rich picture of the environment and context of which institutes are carrying out research activity. They reckon that one of the greatest single risks we face is that a reliance a reliant on quantitative assessment alone will miss out a bigger picture of everything that is important in the research ecosystem. On the site this week, we've been making the argument that there is a sense or an opportunity to think about whether we have a single accessible research ecosystem. Instead, should we be thinking about the functions of research within institutions, whether that is more civically focused, more world focused or something else? and instead assess these institutions in clusters, as we do with the KEF at the moment. It would be a significantly different research exercise, but as the report calls for a revolution over two assessment cycles of radical change, to use their terms, this could be the ideal moment to have that debate. Elsewhere, DK is thinking about the use of automation in research assessments and how we get that right balance between cost efficiency and thoroughness in any future research assessment exercise. Elsewhere, There has been a quiet but important inquiry into the use of research statistics. As many uh, listeners of the podcast will be aware, there has been a proposed revision of the UK's R&D density from 1.7% of GDP up to 2.4%. This change has come about due to a a perceived error in sampling methodologies around R&D activity. To put it in short, the current method we use for R&D activity, uh, for measuring R&D activity, was developed in the 1980s, where the presumption was that most R&D activity was taking place in larger businesses. As sectors have changed, as the workforce has changed, as the wider economy has changed, this is likely no longer the case. 
which means that by using the methods of the 1980s, large amounts of research activity taking place in small and medium enterprises has been overlooked. The consequence of this is not only that we may be underreporting the size of the R&D economy, but that there may be sectors that have strengths that are unexpected, there could be places where we are overplaying strengths, and there could be greater regional concentrations of strengths that we've not yet anticipated. The follow-through of this could be enormous. It could change investment strategies, it could change our whole R&D approach, and fundamentally change the way universities partner with business and undertake activity of their own. Okay, finally this week, a group of Wonky SU subscribers have been talking about disabled students. DK, what have they been saying? So, I mean, this is your work, really, Jim. This is you getting a bunch of people together to talk about the experience of disabled students and what kind of interventions might actually make a difference in their student experience. There is a sense with um, interventions for um, disabled students, it can often be a binary thing. Either you put those interventions in place and a person can access higher education or you don't and they can't. So it does uh, feel to me the way that the law stands as regards the need for reasonable adjustments and the need to plan ahead to do that rather than constantly having to respond to express needs, thinking about these things in advance. Um, uh, that we should be a little bit better than this as we actually are. So, I mean, one of the things that came out of your focus group that I liked is the idea of an annual self-audit of gaps in reasonable adjustment plans. People tend to write these plans alongside their course descriptors or module descriptors, and then um, they just sit there until the course gets updated and quite often they're just copied across at that point anyway to build in an annual point where you look at it and say, look, are these mitigations working? Are, has anything come up this year which meant I will have to change this and I want to change it um, going forward? Um, I think that is a really important thing and just bringing these issues to the forefront of um, course delivery and student support teams to make sure that all students can get to the stuff they need. The other recommendation which I'm not as sure about is there was a recommendation in there for a National Disabled Student Survey bolted onto NSS. There is already, I believe, a set of questions you can pay to have added to your particular institution, NSS. Um, if we are doing the whole um, reasonable adjustments embedded in advance thing, um, we should really not need to single out disabled students' experiences, particularly after the event. And I think that um, we all know from survey design stuff that longer surveys, longer questionnaires, more specialised questionnaires with large chunks that might not apply to a particular person get a poor cognitive rating and a, and, um, a poor response rate. It is clear that we need to hear from more students in this. I'm just not convinced that a national survey is the way. Pete, you do a lot of work in this area. And um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the kind of tone of the conversation was a sense of exasperation with lots of reports telling us the same things over and over again, but a real desire for accountability around this. So so the, the shift from warm words to, yes, but we want some want some accountability. <laughs> um, absolutely. And and it's a nice it's a nice fantasy to have that these reasonable adjustments, the anticipatory nature and the inclusive teaching and learning piece have been put in place. Some there are pockets of good practice, but it's certainly 
certainly not universal. And and we're about 20%, if not more, in most institutions that I'm working with of students who've told the university about some sort of disability, long-term health condition, mental health difficulty. So we're not talking about small numbers of students. If you look at the NSS um, uh, kind of outputs, the written ones rather than the uh, the, the numbers, um, they're very uh, clear that things aren't working very well. Uh, so so that, that, that I, I would support um, a specific survey um, with um, sanctions and penalties for, for organisations that aren't doing their anticipatory bit. A lot of the reports have said that there are particular issues. So there are some core themes about sharing a disability, about the admin burden that students experience, which is another disability tax, that um, inclusive and accessible teaching um, and learning design, much of which worked in the pandemic, actually, but which we're seeing um, almost people moving back from. So the DS UK, Disabled Students UK, going back is not a choice report, I thought was a fantastic resource that people, if they haven't come across it, should look at. Um, and, it, and it really is disappointing that the progress made in, in COVID is, is not sticking. But it's certainly not the case that this anticipatory bit has been well understood. And DK's point about, yeah, well, people can pay extra for that. Growing disabled student numbers at most institutions have not been matched with growing resource and support for disability teams and for academic teaching and learning staff to implement inclusive teaching and learning initiatives. If you're in a position where, you know, you've got four or five thousand students and maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20, maybe 100 students have got very specialised individual disability, you, you can treat that very much as a kind of individualised issue. Now, now clearly you have to fund a service and some support, but an individualised issue. But once you're on, I don't know, 25,000 students and 20% are disabled, you need to think about all of the kind of major disabilities strategically, don't you? <laughs> and, and when I, you know, talking to the people on the call, none of them said that they were in a, an institution which had, for instance, stats beyond, you know, mental health dis- disability, other disability, you know, the, the, the richness of the kind of strategy around disability just wasn't there in the conversation. And I, and I think that's the tragic thing. And I, I think it needs to be really spoken about and dealt with um, more openly with, with honest discussion. I mean, I agree with, with, with everything Pete said. And I think the, ex- the, the piece was excellent. And I think actually all managers in higher education should read it. The suggestions are logical. I resonated with the comments and it really put the disabled voice at the heart of this discussion. Um, and I think one of the big issues that we have are students self-declare before they come to university or whilst at university, they identify that an issue arises and they become aware of it, whether it be, you know, dyspraxia, dyslexia, or just the, the, the change, the move has triggered something that was always there, but they didn't necessarily know about. And I think the recommendation that students are provided with clear written advice in plain English, especially not legalistic speak at pro times is, is, is essential. And, and just as Pete said, you know, I talk to students with disabilities and they tell me that the COVID changes in policy, especially regarding the in-person attendance, really provided them with flexibility. So it is a shame that the approach of you must come back into the classroom is a blanket rather nuanced one. But one practical action I think could occur regarding this area and it would greatly support students and staff is addressing the GDPR concerns and regulation from legal and policy departments in university. It is a huge issue for staff because it blocks their ability to support students effectively. A classic example is a student who's self-declared on the system but the course team is not allowed to know any information because of the GDPR rules put in place by tuition. If we go back to training, you know, we can train our course leaders and our modules to how to deal with this information effectively and confidentially. And this approach in itself just creates greater problems and complexity than it should do. Yes, that whole sort of, you know, uh, tell us once and then we'll forget multiple times. You know, like that, that was extraordinary. That came up in the discussion um, in the discussion quite a bit. The, the, the other thing, DK, that I thought, you know, was really kind of I- interesting about the discussion was this sense that um, often that there's there, there are different, that effectively 
basically there are there are competing sources of expertise in the institution. There's there's teaching and learning expertise, there's disability expertise. And you know, whilst that does work in, in some institutions, there is this sense that where there's a dis- disagreement, you know, from a disability team and a, and a and a teaching and learning team or whatever, that often that disagreement had to be played out through the disabled student, kind of ferrying backwards and forwards, having the having a passive aggressive row between people. And it's just that just felt really unacceptable. Well, yeah, that's utterly ridiculous. There's no way any student should be put in that um, position to have to um, play off two different parts of the university against each other. Um, we do need to get um, better at sharing information about students between the teaching end and the student support end and all the bits in the middle of a university. Um, we, there does need to be a, um, a single reliable way to tell people about a disability or an issue you're experiencing and have that resolved everywhere all at once. It does happen in some places, but uh, too often uh, stuff like this is just not seen as a priority to share there's uncertainty about data protection there's uncertainty about what can and should realistically be shared and what other people might need to know so um as michelle i think it was said that um there is good practice out there we need to get um better at um doing this every time doing it reliably uh, pete let me just just just, just recount one, one 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 last little bit for you which i just thought was fascinating so um a couple of people were saying look it's really important that students understand their rights because if they understand their rights and they're much more likely to be able to kind of you know you know n- nudge in the right direction early on rather than it becoming a crisis but then a couple of other people said <clears throat> no 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 it's really important that all students understand the rights of disabled students what you don't do is just say to disabled students here are your rights you tell all students what disabled students rights are because then they're more likely to support each other and more likely to um you know accept particular adjustments that are made for particular individuals i just thought that was fascinating because so often we work on you you know we problematize individuals with characteristics rather than problematize the 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 issue don't we absolutely and this is the the description of it all playing out via the student an additional burden a real challenge towards their teaching and learning experience because they've got to advocate for themselves um, there was something in this about advocating you know professional advocacy because disability teams in universities are advisory they shouldn't be advocates it should be um, that there should be someone independent to advocate for them but but what I heard from you is the is is the reality of experience out there I don't think we've got close to um, solving this problem and you know the, the, there was a really good report in 2017 which Joe Johnson um, kind of gave the forward to and, and supported which was called teaching and um, inclusive teaching and learning a route to excellence and I and in it, it advised governing bodies, vice chancellors, and those top teams to look at um, their responsibilities under the Equality Act, their duties, um, and to make sure that they weren't breaching their duties under the Equality Act. And I'm not sure it got much traction, and I think it would be well worth revisiting for many people. So that's what we've got time for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Acast, Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Pete, Michelle, DK, Mike, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next year, slay wonky. Better watch out, you better not cry If your metrics are bad, then you need to know why The OFS is coming to town They're making a list, they're checking it later 
Because they have concerns on your progression data, the OFS is coming to town. They turn up on your campus, the boots are on the ground. If you're below the threshold, then you know they won't mess around. Wherever they look, wherever they see, you better not forget to cover their feet. OFS are coming to town. They're making interventions all over the nation, but don't bother responding to their consultations. OFS are coming to town. If they can't give a fine for whatever they saw, you better watch out, cause they're changing the law. OFS are coming to town. Thresholds have been published, the dashboard up there too. And if you fall below the line, it'll be bad news for you. You better not shout even if you're losing, cause in this day and age you only answer to Susan. The OFS are coming to town. The OFS are coming. I said the OFS are coming. The OFS are coming to town. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.